0: And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although we'll hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, Melsa, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Alan Eskins at Scott County Library, Prior Lake. Lawyer-turned-novelist Alan Eskins burst onto the thriller scene in 2014 with his compulsively suspenseful mystery, The Life We Bury. This literary debut won the former defense attorney the genre's prestigious Barry Award, the Rosebud Award for Best First Novel and put him in contention for an Edgar Award, an Anthony Award, and half a dozen others. The Life We Bury has since been published in 16 languages, an option for a feature film adaptation. Eskin's follow-ups, The Guys of Another in 2015 and The Heavens May Fall in 2016, follow some of the same characters. The latter won the 2017 Minnesota Book Award for genre fiction. Eskin's newest book. The Deep Dark Descending debuted in October. It centers around homicide detective Max Rupert, a protagonist already known to Eskin's fans, as a veteran cop struggles to balance his professional integrity with a desire for personal vengeance after the shocking revelation that the hit and run that accidentally killed his wife was no accident at all.
1: Wow, thank you. Thank you all for coming out tonight. I really appreciate it. Uh, yes, I'm Alan Eskins, and uh, I am an author now. I used to be an attorney-slash-author, but uh, I am now just a full-time author. And uh, um, when I first realized that I was going to become an author, um, I had never been to a book event before. I had never listened to an author speak before, so I didn't know what authors talked about. So I started going to book events just to see what they talked about. And they would talk about things like, well, primarily the path that led them to becoming an author. And they would say things like, I knew I was going to be an author from a young age because I wrote my first short story in third grade, or I I was always in the library reading books. And it seems like they had a different path to becoming an author than what I had. So I went in search of my path and how it was that I came to be a writer, and my search took me back to my hometown of Jefferson City, Missouri, to my mother's closet, to a bin in my mother's closet where she kept my my school memorabilia. And there, I found what I believe is the seed of my being a writer on my first grade report card. (laughs) This is my first grade report card from St. Peter's Elementary School in Jefferson City, Missouri. And on the back, where my parents had to sign, my teacher, sister Ronald Marie, wrote, Alan dreams too much when work is to be done in school. <laughs> and that's what started me down a path to becoming a writer. Uh, I have always been a huge daydreamer. Um, it was my favorite part of school. Uh, <laughs> I, I could sit at a window and look out and see something you know, reflective and I was gone for the entire class period. And you see, I come from a family, um, a blue collar family. My dad was a Nebraska farmer who moved to Missouri and fell in love with hanging sheet rock so he started a drywall company. Uh, my mother was his helpmate and we never really discussed college. It was never something that was you know, part of our plan. We were always, I always thought that I was going to grow up to be a construction worker of some sort. So I never really cared about my grades in school. And I never really thought that I would do anything other than construction. But then a couple of things happened and it happened because of teachers. How many teachers or former teachers do we have here? Quite a few. Um, I would like to thank you for being a teacher. And on behalf of students like me, I'd like to apologize. I really was one of those incorrigible ones. But a teacher started me down a new path. It was my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Allen. So when I was in fifth grade, my school put on a play. And to be in the play, you had to be a sixth, seventh, or eighth grader, of which I was none. But this teacher saw something in me, this creative spark, and she went to the director of the play, the eighth grade teacher, and said, can you give this kid an audition? and I got an audition, and not only did I get a part, I got the best part in the whole play, not the lead. I got the part of the only character who got to say a cuss word. (laughs) I played a prisoner, and in my scene, they were going to hang me, and there's this priest trying to get me to confess my sins before they hanged me. Now, I show up for dress rehearsal, and I'm really excited about being an actor now, and they gave me my costume. And my costume is long underwear with black electrical tape around it for
2: stripes.
1: (laughs) Now, where I come from, long underwear is still underwear. So I'm gonna be in front of the entire school in my underwear. Now this is my, this is everybody's worst nightmare. And I'm thinking, "Ah, what do I get myself into? But I'm a professional, so I do my scene. And in my scene, I'm sitting backwards in this chair, and I'm looking out to the audience, and the first performance is grades one through four. So there's all these little kids out there. And I'm looking really angry, and there's this priest over here who says, are you sure you won't confess your sins? And I say, yes, I'm sure, damn it, go away. And when I said, damn it, those kids, their eyes popped, their jaws dropped, and I became a celebrity. And I thought, I like this acting thing. (laughs) Well, my school didn't put on any more plays. So I went back to my old ways. And I became, once again, a very poor student. And uh, when I was digging through my mom's bin, I found my eighth grade report card, which I brought along with me as well. And for language arts, and I, I, I make a living with language arts today, this is what my language arts teacher had to say. Alan is completely out of it in language arts. (laughs) He seldom pays attention. He seldom studies. He seldom does his homework. And when he does, it is not of the quality he's capable of doing. Signed, Mrs. Lee. But the thing is, she was right. That was me. I was that student. I really really didn't care about school. And by the time I got in eighth grade, I actually hated school. I really did. And I thought, when I get into high school, I'm going to do my four years, get done with it, and go into construction. But I get to high school, and my high school has a theater department. And I remembered how much fun I had back in fifth grade. And that spring they're doing Oklahoma, and me and my buddy were, were kind of talking about you know, the, the play, and it was kind of on a dare. We both decided we we're gonna try out for the play and see what happens. We both got in it, and it was glorious. I had so much fun doing that play. And that's when I decided I was going to be Allen theater guy. That was gonna be my thing. So I threw myself into theater, and theater, in my theater classes and in my chorus classes, I got straight A's, which counterbalanced the C's, D's, and F's I was getting in my other classes. But another thing that theater did was it taught me how to take these daydreams and focus them and be creative with them. And the third thing it did was it introduced me to some new friends who were going to go to college. And I started thinking, what if? What if I went to college? Well, I I wasn't a serious student. Um, Like I said, I I flunked a lot of classes. I got a lot of Ds and Cs. And at the beginning of my senior year, I thought, okay, I would like to go to college just to see what it'd be like. So I would go to my, my guidance counselor, and I said, I'm thinking about going to college. And she pulls out my report cards and she goes, but Alan, you're not really college material. And she had a point. But I thought, I'll go as a theater major, because I don't have to be smart to be a theater major. <laughs> so I went to college as a theater major. Um, I studied really hard my senior year. I got my GPA up to a 2.5. <laughs> and I got into the University of Iowa, because I did really well on my ACT. So I get into Iowa, and my plan is simple. I'm going to do two years. And I'm gonna study theater. I'm gonna study everything I can about theater. I'm gonna take the classes that they they want me to take, but I'm gonna focus on theater. And after two years, I'm gonna go to New York City and I'm gonna become an actor. I'm gonna spend the rest of my life in New York City. Well, I was doing pretty well with that. Um, It turns out that I had a talent for dancing. And so at the university, University of Iowa, I was studying all kinds of dance. I remember when I went home for my first. Thanksgiving visit, Um, my dad is a very quiet, stoic man. And that first Thanksgiving visit, we're sitting in the living room and he he says, so Alan, what kind of classes are you taking up there at the college? And I say, well, dad, I'm taking algebra and geology and and rhetoric and ballet. (laughs) He pauses, ballet, so Does that mean you wear pantyhose? (laughs) I said, well, Dad, they're tights, but yes, I do. Uh, He never brought it up again. (laughs) So I'm all set to to do this plan of going to New York City when I sprained my ankle really badly. And I knew I wouldn't be able to do what I wanted to do as a dancer. So I looked around, evaluated my situation, and realized that I kind of liked college. So I changed my major to journalism, moved to the, uh, Minnesota, completed my degree at the University of Minnesota, and in those last couple years, for the first time in my life, I was trying to get good grades. I was studying, I was reading the stuff that they told me to read, and I was doing the assignments they told me to do, and I was getting good grades. And I thought, boy, wouldn't this have been nice if I'd done this from the very beginning? <laughs> and I started wondering, what if? What if I did this from the very beginning? And really with a little more impetus than that, I went to law school. Now, I never really wanted to be a lawyer. I thought it looked like fun because LA law was a big thing back then. (laughs) So I go to law school and I take to law school like a duck to water. Um, I did really well in law school. I loved it, I had fun, Um, got good grades, I was on law review and all these other things. And I graduated and I got a job in St. Peter as a judicial law clerk. And all this time I was in law school, I was thinking that there was something missing, that this creative side to me that I had fostered through theater for so long was dying on the vine. (laughs) And I started looking around for something I could do that was creative. And at this point in my life, I was pretty good with words, so I thought, let's be a writer. So I started reading books on how to write. Back in 1991, I I, I bought my first book, and I just started reading on writing technique. Then I started taking classes at um, Iowa Summer Writers Festival and at the Loft Literary Center. And eventually I, ha- I went to the MFA program in Mankato. So over 20 years, off and on, I was studying creative writing with this idea that I wanted to be a writer. And I developed this, this passion for it. It became my hobby. That's what I wanted to do. If I, you know, instead of going out and playing golf, I'd like to write short stories or write poetry or something. And while I was studying, I was writing on a, I was. I had a manuscript I call my practice manuscript. So every time I learned something new, I would go to this manuscript, and I would, I would add this technique to this manuscript. And so over 20 years, I had this manuscript that was really kind of piecemeal together. And I thought, okay, this is not ready for prime time. So I put it aside, and then I outlined and wrote a novel called The Life We Bury. So this is my, my debut novel, The Life We Bury. And it tells the story of a college student who gets an assignment to interview somebody and write their story. He doesn't know anybody in the Twin Cities, so he goes to a nursing home to find a subject. There he meets a man who is a Vietnam vet, dying of cancer, but also spent 30 years in prison for murder. And through this interview process, my protagonist, Joe Talbert, gets pulled into a 30-year-old mystery. So it is a mystery, but... It's also the story of Joe Talbot running away from home to go to college. He wants to leave behind his dysfunctional mother and his autistic younger brother. He doesn't want to be responsible for his younger brother. He wants to chart his own path. And it, the, the title, The Life of Barry," is a metaphor for his desire to leave part of himself behind. And the man he's interviewing, Carl, has already tried to leave part of himself behind. And so Carl becomes kind of a mentor character. And so I write this story, and the idea for the the story actually came from when I first moved to to Minnesota. Uh, I was supposed to go out and interview somebody. And because I was new here, I just went to a nursing home to find a subject. And there I met a nice gentleman who didn't have a dark secret, but I thought when I was writing this novel, what if I'd met somebody with a dark secret? So that's where the idea for the novel came from. So I write The Life for Barry and I then start sending it out to try and get a publisher. And I want to be a traditionally published author, so I want to have an agent. So my first task is I need to get an agent. So I'm sending out these query letters trying to get an agent, and I'm getting rejection after rejection after rejection. And one of the things the rejections are saying is we don't know exactly how we would market this book. It's kind of a mystery. It's kind of a coming-of-age story. It's kind of a thriller. It's kind of a literary novel. And because there was no really neat, if you like this guy, you'll like this guy, they were, they were passing on it. So to distract myself from these rejections, I started writing my second novel, The Guise of Another. I didn't know it was going to be my second novel at the time. I just thought I was going to keep writing manuscripts until I got an, uh, an agent. But so I'm writing my second novel, and I thought, well, I'm going to make this one a little more plot driven. It's going to be a thriller. It's going to be a dead-on thriller, and there's no mistaking what it is. And about the time I finished my manuscript for my second novel, I get an agent on my first. Now, I was rejected by 150 agents before I got my agent. But once I got an agent, we submitted it to some publishers and within three weeks had two offers for publication. And once we picked a publisher, we then went back to that publisher and said, look, I have another manuscript, and I would like to do a three-book arc for the character in this, ma- in this novel. And we got a three-book deal. So by the time The Life of Barry hit the store shelves, I had contracts for four books total. So what I decided to do is, because Joe is a college student, I did not want to have my college student protagonist in a series where he trips over dead bodies and solves more murders. So I took secondary characters from The Life of Barry, and I started telling their stories going forward. So the, f- the first story arc is for Max Rupert. Max is a homicide detective in The Life of Barry. He plays a small role, but it's a very important role. Um, there's another character I'm going to refer to in a second. There. His name is Bodie Sandon in The Life of Barry. He is a law professor. He plays a small but important role. So I take Max Rupert. And I write three books about Max. The first one, The Guys of Another, is a good brother, bad brother story where Max is the good brother. He's not the main protagonist, but I want to set him up in this book as being a man with a moral code, a man who follows the rules. And that is the main point of of his role in this novel as far as the three book arc goes. So then I write the second novel in that arc, the third novel of my lifetime called The Heavens May Fall. In The Heavens May Fall, Max is questioning that Boy Scout nature of his. He's questioning whether following the rules is better or following your heart, you know. The, the, The title comes from a legal phrase, let justice be done, though the heavens may fall. It stands for the proposition that you should always do what you believe to be right, even if that means you're gonna face consequences. So Max is, in this book, faced with a choice. Do I follow the rules, do I do what they say I'm supposed to do, or do I do what I believe to be right? So there's a crack in that moral facade of his. The third book, which just came out in October, is The Deep Dark Descending. This completes the arc for Max. He is faced with his darkest nature. This is a revenge novel. wants revenge, but the premise for this novel comes from the idea that people say, you know, if anybody ever ever did that to my loved one, I would have no trouble, and then fill in the blank. I'd have no trouble killing them. I'd have no trouble pulling the switch at the electric chair, whatever. And I wondered if a person is faced with a situation where they have complete control and they have the ability to exact their revenge, but they have to look the person in the eye and they have to deliberate about it. Could they do it? So I wanna read just a little bit of this novel to give you an idea of what I'm, what I'm talking about. So this is chapter one of The Deep Dark Descending. I raise the axe handle for the third blow and my arm disobeys me, stiffening above my head. My hand, tangled in knots of shouldn'ts and shoulds, and all those second thoughts that I swore wouldn't stop me. My chest burns to take in oxygen. My body trembles with a crystalline rage and my mind screams orders to my mutinous hand. For Christ's sake, get this over with. This is what you came here for. Kill him. But the axe handle doesn't move. A surge of emotion boils up from somewhere deep inside of me building to such a violent pitch that I can't hold it in, and I let loose a howl that fills the spaces between the trees and whips through the forest like an arctic wind, swirling skyward until it fades into nothingness. And still, the axe handle doesn't move. Why can't I kill this man? So those are the first two paragraphs of this novel. And when I wrote this novel, the important part to me is there's this morality play going on. There's this man who is looking at vengeance, but he's a man who's lived his whole life enforcing justice. And he's conflicted by what he wants to do and what he should do. And this scene takes place on a frozen lake on the Minnesota-Canadian border. And so I start the novel. Max has already caught the guy, but then I go back in time, three days, and I show the investigation. And I go back and forth between the investigation and this scene on this frozen lake as Max is trying to deliberate what to do now that he's caught this guy. And initially when I um, was conceiving this novel, I I, I knew there was going to be a chase. I knew there was going to be a catch. And I knew there was going to be a large section, a third of the novel, that takes place after this catch, when he catches the guy. And I don't know if you know this, but as an author, I can go to some really cool places in the world and write it off on my taxes as long as I put it in a book. <laughs> so when I was conceiving this novel, I was thinking this, this chase was going to take me to Aruba or something. <laughs> but then I, I bought a fish house.
2: <laughs>
1: now, I'm not originally from Minnesota. And I didn't grow up knowing the rules of fish houses. But I bought this fish house, and it turns out that a lake, the lake ice, will swallow a fish house. I did not know that. (laughs) So I put this fish house on my lake, and I live on a lake, and I put it out there, and I used it a couple times, but then I got busy writing my novels, and I'd go to the window, and I'd wave at my fish house out there, and it's out there all winter, and this was a winter where we had 37 days where it never got above zero. So I figured, it's really cold out there, you know, my fish house is fine. Well, end of the season rolls around, I drive out on the lake, and I'm gonna get my fish house off the lake. And I walk up to the fish house, and I go to open the door, and the door won't open. And I look down, and I see that the surface of the lake is blocking the door from opening. (laughs) I think that's curious. And then it dawns on me that that door sits atop a six-inch steel frame. So my fish house is at least eight inches, or sorry, eight inch steel frame. My fish house is at least eight inches embedded in the lake. I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> Apparently the sun will come out and heat this fish house, and it'll melt just a little bit of ice into water, and then it'll freeze that night. Next day, same thing over an entire winter, even though it's never above zero, eight inches deep. So When your lake swallows your fish house, you learn how many friends you got. (laughs) And apparently for me, it's just one. (laughs) So me and my buddy, we go out there, and we're out there with chainsaws and ax and pickaxes and hatchets and hydraulic jacks. And we're out there for two days straight, from day, from sunup to sundown. And it never got above three below zero on either of those two days, not counting windshield. And we hacked and hacked and hacked. And after the first day, I went home and I was, I was just beat up and I thought, it's gonna freeze tonight and everything we did today is gonna be wasted. And I go online to see, you know, there's gotta be someone who else who's done this. So I go online, how do you get a frozen lake house off the ice? And there's a video of a guy dousing his fish house with gas and lighting it on fire. <laughs> And I think, hmm.
2: <laughs>
1: so the next day, we go out there and we hack and we hack and we saw. And right as the sun's going down, we get the final, we pop it up out of the ice and we drag it off that lake. And I, I park it where it is still parked today. And I go inside, and just every joint of my body aches, every muscle. My knees are swollen, I can barely bend them. And I think, Max is going to finish this chase on a frozen lake. <laughs> He's going to experience what I just did. So my first book, The Life, Life of Barry*, comes out. And it comes out to some wonderful reviews. Uh, it was chosen by uh, like Amazon and Library Reads as being one of the best books coming out that month. And it was chosen by some magazines as being one of the best books of the year. And then it gets these award nominations. And the award nominations are just, I, I couldn't believe it. I was nominated for an Edgar Award. Now an Edgar Award is like the Academy Award for Mystery Writers. And I, I couldn't believe that I was on that list. And it meant that I got to go to New York City. And I left high school thinking I was going to live the rest of my life in New York City. I never made it there until I made it there that year as a, as a writer. So not only do I get, I get to go to New York City, I get to wear my tux. <laughs> See, I own my own tux. And I hadn't gotten to wear it for a long time, well over a decade. And so I, I, I take my tux in, I have it cleaned, And then I take it back in have it altered. (laughs) And then off to New York City I go. We go, my wife and I. And for the Edgar Awards, there's a reception before the actual banquet. And at the reception, we're in a room a little bigger than this one, and it's all these wonderful literary dignitaries and, and, and the other nominees, and I'm standing eight feet away from Stephen King drinking wine in a tuxedo both of us and nobody else was taking selfies with him and I couldn't figure it out because I wanted so much to take a selfie with Stephen King but nobody else was doing it so I didn't. Um, I did take a picture of the back of his head. Um, My my wife and I are starting a collection of, of famous authors who don't know that we're taking their pictures. So we'll we'll be taking a selfie and behind us we like f Paul Wilson eating the salad or something.
2: <laughs>
1: so, so then after the reception we go up to the banquet, and I'm really nervous, and I'm sitting way in the back at my table with my publisher and my agent and other people, and we finish dinner and they're getting ready for the award ceremony, and because I'm nervous I step outside and I, I, I just do a little pacing to, to burn off some energy and think because I didn't write down any speech I didn't want people to think that I expected to win. So, and I, I know that when I get nervous, I forget things. So I'm thinking, okay, if they call your name, don't forget to thank your wife, don't forget to thank your wife. <laughs> and as I'm pacing, I start to feel this flipping on the back of my heels. This flip, flip, flip. And I go back into the banquet and I sit down and I look, and the soles of my shoes are coming off. From the heel all the way to the ball of my foot, on both shoes, it's, it's, it's a flip-flop. It, it's, it's a patent of the flip-flop. Apparently, the glue they use to hold the soles on these shoes has an expiration date. So I sit down, and I'm, I'm just like looking at my shoe, looking at the stage, and if they call my name, i got a serpentine around all these wonderful authors, get up on stage and walk across, and I'm just gonna, I know I'm going to get there without my soles. And I was nervous before, and now I'm just petrified. But lucky for me, they didn't call my name. <laughs> but I had such a wonderful time in New York City. I got to go to New York City three times that year for different book events, for different awards. And, uh, and it was, the city was everything I expected it to be. I just had so much fun. But I, so I won three, of the, three or four of the, of, the, of the seven awards for the first book. And then when my second book came out, I was going to get my first New York Times review. And I thought, yippee, a New York Times review. Now, I had never read a New York Times review before. <laughs> so I started reading New York Times reviews. They can be vicious. You know, it's not like your local paper, you know, going boy. They can tear you apart. And so now I'm not so sure I'm happy about this New York Times review. And they tell you when it's going to come out. And so I was actually in Nashville that day. And it, the Sunday rolled around. I run to the store. I get my newspaper, the New York Times paper. I open it up. And I read the review, and it's a good one. And I'm so relieved. And one of the lines that the reviewer wrote was, Eskin's prose is like winter in the blood. It's like, oh, I wish I'd written that. (laughs) (laughs) So then I write, The the Heavens May Fall comes out. And that was, um, I I was very fortunate. It was uh, chosen as the Minnesota Book Award for genre fiction this year and now The Deep Dark Descending just came out. And so The Deep Deeper Descending is the third of this arc for Max. So I'm gonna go to another um, character right now. So my fifth book is actually going to be the sequel to The Life We Bury. Um, I didn't want to write the sequel right away. I wanted to give Joe time to mature, time to grow up. He's no longer in college. He is a, a reporter for the Associated Press in Minneapolis. And if you've read The Life of Barry, uh, you may remember that Joe was named after his father, but he never met his father. His mom got pregnant, and when she had Joe, she named him after this man in hopes that the man would stick around, but the man did not. So Joe grows up with another man's name, and as an Associated Press uh, uh, reporter, he comes across a press release about a man named Joe Talbert who was found dead in southern Minnesota. That begins the story. So it, it also allowed me to go back and look at Joe made some very momentous decisions at the end of that first novel. And it always made me wonder how his life would change because of those decisions. So I get to go back and explore that a little bit. I also get to bring back Jeremy and his, his mother Kathy and Lila. So that book is at the publishers right now. Being my editor is reading it right now. Um, and I'm on my sixth book I'm writing my sixth book now my sixth book remember I told you I had this this kind of hot mess manuscript that I worked on for 20 years that's my sixth book (laughs) so it's actually the first manuscript I wrote and it was a story of a 14 year old boy and it takes place in 1976 in Missouri and as I was writing that manuscript I wanted to give my 14 year old boy a name that when you said it has kind of a southern drawl to it. So I named him Bodie. Bodie Sandon. And then years later, or when I was writing The Life of Barry and I was creating this law professor character, I thought, just for fun, I'm gonna take this 14-year-old boy and make him this law professor when he grows up. It was just kind of a lark, and now it looks brilliant because now I get to go back and write Bodie's story, which was really the first story I ever wrote. <laughs> and that one will be coming out 2019 Um, after that I don't really know because I have like four different book ideas in my head this whole thing of you know me being a a daydreamer it's still there that's that's really all I do now for a living is daydream and write it down so it's it's uh, you know it's so wonderful to have something that you're passionate about that you would do as a hobby and even if no one paid you and be able to do it full-time and it's even more exciting to be able to come to rooms like this and talk to people about what you do, about what you're excited about. And it amazes me every time I come to an event like this that people show up. So <laughs> thank you.
0: With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Clubbook audience for questions and comments for Alan Eskins and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what the time
1: frame was for Eskin's three book agreement. It was a book a year, but when I got the publishing deal for The Life We Bury, I think it was like May of 2013, and just shortly after that, we had the agreement for the other three, so that's summer of 2013. So I already had The, you know, the Guides of Another written, you know, first drafted, so really I had, um, I had the, the, the book for 2015 was already first drafted, the book for 2016 was in my head and outlined, and the book for this past year was also outlined, because I had, you know, when I gave them the, the uh, suggestion for a three book deal, I had a synopsis, here's what each book is gonna be about, and um, so, I had uh, more than enough time to write them, given the fact that I was also practicing law full time. And now I am not practicing law, and I am I, I am such a man of leisure. I I get up, I have some coffee and biscotti, and take my dogs for a walk, and you know then I'm, I'll sit down and do a little writing, have lunch, take a nap, do some more writing. So it's it's a great life. I, I advise everybody to do it. <laughs>
0: This next question is what Alan Eskin's writing process looks like.
1: Yeah, when, when I write a novel, even though I'm considered a genre author, so I write mysteries slash thrillers, uh, when I outline my novels, I will outline the external plot, which is the mystery or the thriller plot. Then I'll put that aside, and I'll say, now what's the story really about? And it's the relationship and the, the characters that I want to write about. So In The Life We Bury, it was about people learning that, uh, dealing with guilt of leaving things behind, of trying to leave parts of themselves behind, and leaving with the aftermath of trying to leave leave parts of themselves behind. So that was the theme of the novel. And so yeah, there's a lot of that in there because that's, Carl, the, 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 the man in the nursing home, becomes what we call a mentor character. Now if this had just been a straight mystery, he would have been the accused, and that's it. But because this had this other deeper relationship, personal plot, he became a mentor to Joe. He was there to teach Joe, here's what you need to know to make it through life. Here's what you need to know to, to deal with what you're dealing with. So that's why all these different stories revolve around that same theme. So when I write a book, I have some kind of a theme that I'm, um, I'm, I'm pushing or, or, or having the characters okay. deal with throughout the novel. Because I daydream, I have all these ideas in my head. So I get this big sketch pad out, and I will write the different ideas down. And then I'll take each idea, and I'll just, in my imagination, run with it to, you know, to the end of the, the three-act structure. And I'll just keep doing that over and over and over with you know, smaller and bigger ideas until I have an outline, which is I have a plot point for each chapter. So each chapter is a scene. Each scene has to have a purpose for being there. That purpose is my plot point. Now, my outline is my map. So I start here, I end there, and here's everything I hit along the way. When I sit down to write, it's like I'm driving the actual road. I'm describing things. I'm you know the scenery, the dialogue, and all that stuff. Um, I'm filling it in, and I'm using the craft and technique that I studied for 20 years to do that. But yeah, um, I am not one of those who, believes that a muse will jump in my head and tell me what to write. I'm, I, I, I'm in control and I say this is what I'm gonna write. If I come to a point where I think you know, this could work a better way, I'll step back, make sure the outline works before I sit down again, then I'll get back to writing it. Um, because I do so much of my, um, my process before I start typing, um, I, I will daydream and think and, and work on a novel for years Months at the, very, at the very least, but years sometimes. So right now, I'm writing book six. I have seven, eight, and nine in my head. And um, so I will think about those for years. And that usually lead me, leads me to, by the time I'm writing, I know what this story is going to be about. With that said, sometimes when I'm writing dialogue, when I'm writing dialogue, I'm in my head, and I'm having this conversation. I'm trying to type as fast as I can to keep up with the conversation. And sometimes I get done with the conversation and I look and I think, okay, this is not where this conversation was supposed to go. Mm -hmm. And I step back and say, okay, is this a better way to go? If it is, I will then go back and re-outline because I want to make sure that the ripples from this change don't, you know, I I could have written something back in chapter three that now is completely nonsensical because of this change. So I'll, I'll redo my entire outline and say, do I like this better than the previous outline? If so, I'll go with that. If not, I'll go back to the original outline and change the, the, the conversation. But I'm really, I'm one of those who stays in pretty strong control of, the, of the, the process and the characters as we're going along.
0: This question is about Eskin's involvement in the creation of the
1: audiobooks for his novels. Uh, to a small extent, um, the audio company will send me samples of voices and I get to listen to them and they're very short, like three minutes. So it's hard to tell because you don't get to hear them do different characters usually. Um, but Zach Vila, who did the, the Life of Barry, I thought he did a terrific job. Um, when I got that CD, my copy of the CD, I, I put it in, and I just I like, opened it up to just a random line, and he read it so dramatically, it, I, I'm thinking, I, that line wasn't meant to be dramatic, but man, that gave me chills. <laughs> so um, he actually won an award for his narration of that, of that novel. And then uh, The Heavens May Fall had three different narrators, the one who did Max, uh, I really loved how he did it. So I asked, could he do Max again for the Burke descending? And um, R. C. Bray is the man's name, and he did Max for the Burke descending. But that's the extent. Um, I did a little bit of editing for the life of Barry because when it comes to the when, in the novel, there's this code that has numbers, and um, I, I couldn't imagine a narrator reading those numbers over and over. So I edited it so those were summarized in the, in the audio.
0: Another audience member wonders how much
1: of Eskin's legal career he puts into his books. There's an underlying foundation that my legal career provides me as a writer, especially as a writer of mysteries. So there's, there's little things that you wouldn't think of. For example, in, in one of my novels, there is a, 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 uh, an estate that is in question. Who is going to get this estate? I would never have thought of using that as a motivating factor in a novel had I not gone to law school and understand how intestacy law works and uh, things like that. When it comes to crime novels, being a criminal defense attorney, that's all I did for 25 years. I looked at investigative reports. I, you know, second guessed. I I had to try and know more than the investigators knew to try and cross-examine them. So it makes it easy for me to write within that genre. But with that said, I did not want to be a lawyer who writes novels. I wanted to be a novelist who just happened to practice law before I became a novelist. So that's in part why The Life of Barry did not have, as its protagonist, a cop or an attorney or a reporter or a doctor because I wanted to have you know, a, a, an amateur person and I didn't want people to say, oh, he's a lawyer because he wrote a legal thriller. So... Uh, I, 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 in The Heavens May Fall, there's a legal thriller aspect to it, but that's is about as close as I'm going to get to a legal thriller for some time. Lila is in law school. I want to write a story for her, so I expect when I do her story, there's going to be a legal thriller aspect to it, um, but only because that's where she's at in her, in her life, not because I am a lawyer to begin with.
0: This next question asker inquires about Alan Eskin's books being adapted into films.
1: The Life of Barry is in development for a feature film. It is, um, I, am com- I am completely out of the loop. So what I know is that there is a production company really working hard to try and make it a movie. I know that they have a, a writer-director attached to the project. Um, I hear that they have a final screen- screenplay and script, um, but that's not for sure. So I'm just completely out of the loop, and I think it's because if I knew what was going on, I'd be blabbering it all over the place, and they want to keep it kind of quiet for now because they don't want to have to compete for certain actors, or honestly, I don't know where it's at. If you go to internet movie database on the the internet, IMDB, it'll say, The Life of Barry 2018. So it's got that next year attached to it, which was put there by the producers. Whether that's aspirational or what they really will do, we'll wait and see. But I'm hoping it happens. I, I think it'd be cool to see my words coming out of some actor's mouth. <laughs> A
0: member of the audience wonders what books Eskins likes to read. Comic books.
1: No, um, I read, uh, I, I tend to read literary authors. Um, I, I read, you know, genre authors when I'm doing the outlining stage, when I'm trying to... Uh, get a good grasp on, for example, in, in the Heavens May Fall, I hadn't read a lot of legal thrillers. So I was reading Michael Connelly. And you know, so th- you know, this is how he structures his legal thrillers. And I was, I was going to um, seminars at different conferences on legal thrillers and what is it that you do and don't do in a legal thriller. That's when I'm conceiving it. But when I'm actually going through the writing process, I'm reading you know, Barbara Kingsolver or you know, Harper Lee or... Uh, Right now, I think I'm reading uh, Jane Smiley right now, Thousand Acres. Um, So I will read more literary novels just because uh, it it helps me to lean that way as I write. So uh, you know, um, and this is a podcast, so I'm going to give away a big important secret. I'm not a big reader. (laughs) I should be. As a as a writer, I should be, but I hated reading in high school. I hated reading in grade school. I only read because they forced me to. And every now and again, I'd come upon a gem like *The Outsiders* or, for me, *Where the Red Fern Grows*, where it's like, oh wow, you know, th- this is what literature can do. Or I didn't call it literature back then; I called it books. This is what a book could do. Uh, you know, the, *Where the Red Fern Grows* made me cry. I didn't know a book could do that, and so um, that you know. That kind of things inspired me, but I, I have not been a good reader in my whole life because I come to this as a daydreamer. I have this overactive imagination that I want to focus and use that to, to write novels, but I have read a lot of not novels since I decided I was going to be a writer because I need to understand you know, the structure and technique and you know, what makes a good novel and a bad novel. When I finished The Life of Barry, I took it to some friends and said, I don't read a lot. Can you read this and tell me if this is a novel? And they said, yes, it is. So I went and got it published. So um, I I do read some, but I don't read as much as I should. But I I tend to read literary um, novelists. Another question asker
0: inquires if Eskins has considered changing his typical writing style or genre choice.
1: In a way, my writing style changes from book to book. So the life we bury goes back and forth between these two storylines, the, you know, Joe trying to figure out what happened with this 30-year-old murder. Joe trying to deal with his autistic brother. So it goes back and forth between two storylines. Um, the, the Guides of Another is a thriller told from three points of view. Uh, the Heavens May Fall, um, in The Heavens May Fall, I did something that I haven't seen done in, in another book. It may be out there, but I, I'm not aware of it. But I, I have this investigator who is investigating a murder, and he is convinced, he knows Ben Pruitt killed his wife and he's convinced of that. Well, Ben Pruitt goes and hires Bodhi Sandin, brings him out of retirement to defend him, because they were former law partners. And Bodhi Sandin is convinced this man is innocent. So as I'm writing this novel, if you read it from Max's point of view, I want you to believe this man is guilty. When you read it from Bodhi's point of view, I want you to believe this man is innocent. I want you to like both of these people. I want you to root for both of them, but one has to be right and one has to be wrong. So that was really what the story was all about from the beginning, is trying to keep the reader going back and forth um, and you know understand that each of the either one of these protagonists could be right. So and then the deep dark descending, I go back and forth in time, you know, from present day to three days ago, then two days ago, then one day ago. And uh the the novel I'm writing right now is probably my most literary novel. Um, there is a mystery component, but it's really more of a literary novel. So, I change my style a little bit with each one. There is a historical fiction I'd like to re- write someday. Um, I don't know if I'll ever get around to it because I have so many different ideas in my head right now. But yeah, I I'm one of those weird ducks that I write about whatever interests me, and it just it is working out. So.
0: This next question is if Eskins often hears from his readers.
1: I get emails from all over the world, and uh, they usually focus on what's at the heart of the story, especially the life of Barry, the the brother relationship. Um, So um, I have had, for example, when I was talking to my publicist about the Deep Dark Descending, I said, yeah, and, and... a third of the novel is gonna take place on this frozen lake and this guy's gonna be drilling holes in the ice. And she goes, wait, wait, drilling holes in the ice? Won't they fall through? <laughs> she was from the Philippines. <laughs> I said, no, no, the ice is very thick, so. Um, but yeah, I get different perspectives from different places, but for the most part, the, the emails and the, the, com- the, the comments I get all focus on you know, the, the hearts of the stories. And that end, you know, I couldn't put the book down, which is always wonderful to hear as an author. Uh, and I, I worked really hard on that part of my writing because um, I'm a very impatient reader myself. And so because I'm an impatient reader, I'll be reading something and all of a sudden I'll be, you know, I'll be staring at it for like 20 minutes with a daydream in my head, not realizing that I have a book in my hand anymore. So I, I want to try and, and capture the attention and keep the attention because um, I am a, be- you know, I'm the kind of reader that you'll lose my attention pretty easily. So, this audience member asks, what kind of research
0: Eskins performed to help write
1: an autistic character? As an attorney, had a number of clients who were autistic, and because of that, like I said, as a defense attorney, you sometimes have to really get into the weeds of an issue and know it really well, so that when you go to trial, you know it better than the other side does. And I had one case in particular where I had someone from, um, I can't remember the name, the, the name of the organization here in Minneapolis, but uh, a very well-respected autism clinic come down for a trial and basically teach me about Asperger's syndrome and you know why my client was who he was. Uh, with So I have that, but I also have someone in my life who's autistic, and um, that helped out as well. I, I wanted... In The Life of Barry, I wanted to really be careful with the Jeremy character, because he's autistic. I wanted to really be careful and write that well, and the, the Vietnam vet character as well. Um, so I did a lot of research on, on, on that character as well. I did research on all of them, but those two I was, I knew I wanted to be very, very careful with, because I, I, you know, it, it's a very sensitive subject sometimes. The last question of the night
0: is about a memorable scene Alan Eskins wrote about.
1: The question is about the uh, the scene where Joe is at this hunting cabin. He's, he's escaped this blizzard, broke into this hunting cabin. Now he's trying to walk out of the, the woods after this blizzard. And that scene actually comes from an experience I had. In 1996, a friend let me use his cabin up north. I was going to go up there and do some writing. And so 1996, we had a ton of snow that year. And so I drove up there and of course there's no driveway plowed out it's 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 thigh deep snow for 200 yards back to his cabin so i park on the highway and i don't own a laptop back then i own a regular computer so i take my monitor and i'm i'm walking back to this cabin through thigh deep snow and by the time i get there you know i and there's a scene in the life of barry where he's trying to start a stove with a, a long matchstick and it, it, the first one broke and he's just shaking, that was me. Mm-hmm. I, I was trying to light this fire because I was freezing and I, and I was shaking and I you know I broke the first stick and I'm like, okay, I only have one more so I was very careful. And then I got an electric blanket out, warmed myself up, and as I was warming myself up in this electric blanket, I was thinking, if I walk my whole computer and stuff back here, I'm gonna have a heart attack. Mm-hmm. So I went down in the basement, the, the the crawl space under this cabin, found some pine boards and made snowshoes out of pine boards. I literally did that. So that I could walk on top of the snow and carry all my supplies back to this cabin. And so I went out and I made the the, the snowshoes and I went out and I got my 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 tower and some of the stuff. I'm I'm walking, I'm so proud of myself. I'm walking on these pine boards and I get back to the to the cabin. I walk in, I put my computer down and I smell smoke. And it's not like fireplace smoke. It's it's like Couch smoke. The electric blanket had caught the couch on fire. So I opened the screen door and I pull the couch out and I throw it in the snow, and I'm just disgusted. but I ended up doing a lot of writing that weekend, so But more importantly, I got a good story out of it that I put into a novel. But yeah, um, so you know, a lot of that stuff comes from like breaking out of a trunk. That was something that I did when I was a kid, so it was, you know my older brother was going to take me into a drive-in. I didn't trust my older brother, so I learned how to break out of the trunk in case he chose not to let me out. (laughs) So there's bits and pieces of me in there. Uh, Thank you all for coming out. There are books for sale. If you'd like to buy any, I'll be here to sign.
0: That wraps up our Scott County Library Pryor Lake event with Alan Eskins. Make sure to catch our last Clubbook podcast of the season with Edward Kelsey Moore at St. Paul's Rondo Community Outreach Library. Edward Moore is a pen behind 2014's breakout hit The Supremes at Earl's All You Can Eat. His much-anticipated sequel to that New York Times bestseller titled The Supremes Sing the Happy Heartache Blues hit shelves in June. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.